This podcast is sponsored by Celery, a simple, affordable two-way system that connects the email generation to the pen and paper generation. Learn more at mycelery.com. Hey everyone, it's Duncan Crary. You're listening to the Kunstler Cast, a weekly conversation about the tragic comedy of suburban sprawl featuring James Howard Kunstler. Jim is the author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and World Made by Hand. On today's show, we're going to be discussing global warming and peak oil and how the two relate to each other. Jim, it is great to see you. Well, it's nice to be back with you in uh, sort of normal conditions for a change. Yeah, I, I feel really good to be back on these old RE20 microphones after all that yeah, crazy nice. uh, recording we were doing. You did a very good job. Thank you very much. Well, thanks. Uh, we have a, a great question from a listener, so I'm going to let him start the show. Hi, Jim and Duncan. This is Dave Carter from Cambridge, England. I find most of what you have to say about the future very plausible, but there's one thing that I'm surprised you don't put more emphasis on, and that's climate change. Um, Specifically, what I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on is the relationship between climate change and peak oil. I understand that there's a huge amount of uncertainty about oil reserves, but even so, it looks to me as if we can't afford to let peak oil just happen to us. Because if we do burn up even the limited amount of oil that we can reasonably expect to get out of the ground, we're going to end up putting so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that we'll run a real risk of raising global temperatures so much we'll be in serious trouble. And when you consider emissions from coal and natural gas, that risk becomes a near certainty. So in other words, we can't rely on peak oil to save us from the consequences of already having burnt too much of the stuff. If we're going to avoid disaster, we're going to have to make and keep to an international agreement that effectively makes the downward slope of oil supplies even steeper than declining availability is going to make it anyway. Do you think this argument holds water? And if you do, what do you think our chances are? I have to say that I'm not very optimistic myself. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Bye. I think there's a reasonable fear that if we keep on uh, pounding all that CO2 from coal burning and oil burning into the atmosphere that we're going to cook the planet, and it's a reasonable fear. Although, you know, I have to say right away that there's a huge disinformation uh, campaign going on right now out there to persuade people that climate change isn't real and that we shouldn't do anything about it. It's being uh, extraordinarily effective. And, you know, it's been kind of picked up by the usual suspects, you know, the extreme right-wingers, for example. Uh, There's this character from uh, England named Lord Monckton, Christopher Monckton, who is an extreme right-wing sort of political figure, over there, who has been very, he's got this James Bond-like charm, and he's very articulate, but he's uh, selling very, very bad science and trying to persuade people that uh, global warming isn't occurring, and and I think is uh, having a lot of success. And a lot of the sort of uh, ultra-conservatives in the blogosphere who I uh, monitor because I'm always interested in what the uh, really crazy people are thinking. The right-wing crazies in the blogosphere are all over this. You know, they've made it a like a huge uh, campaign for themselves. 
as as though there was some benefit for them, uh, you know, talking down something that's a huge danger for us. But they seem to derive some kind of perverse satisfaction from doing it because, you know, because other people have, because people of another persuasion have um, suggested strategies like uh, capping and trading CO2 emissions. This gives them an opportunity to say, oh, it's just another government program to destroy your freedom. A lot of the disinformation that I've heard sounds like old John Birch Society propaganda, and is often um, kind of joined to it at the hip, you know, the, the idea that there's a clack of uh, liberals who are trying to force one world government on, on everybody. You know, I think I find that preposterous, especially insofar as, uh, you know, as I see this long emergency set of problems uh, coming down on us, I see government becoming uh, much more local everywhere you know, and, and be, being the opposite of world government, whether people like it or not. You know, we're just not going in that direction. So the disinformation out there has been huge. And, um, you know, there was a scandal in England where a bunch of emails were discovered uh, in one of the universities that, uh, you know, suggested a certain amount of mischief with uh, between rivals and colleagues with jealousies and, you know, the usual kind of academic personality conflicts. And they've used these emails, which really don't amount to much of anything, as uh, so-called evidence that uh, uh, the scientists have been tricking the public. Anyway, I had to get that out of, out of my system because I think it's a great danger for us to go down that path and start buying this nonsense that, uh, we're, that uh, we don't have a problem with uh, climate change and with putting, pumping too much CO2 into the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, the Copenhagen meeting was very disappointing for a lot of people. I did not have high expectations for it. I don't have high expectations, really, that there's going to be a whole lot of international cooperation to mitigate climate change in any way, even if it's possible. A pretty good friend of mine here in Saratoga uh, is about to have a book published that he finished uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, It's actually coming out very, very quickly um, by industry standards. And it's called uh, uh, How to Cool the Planet by Jeff Goodell, who is one of the um, main environmental writers for Rolling Stone magazine and uh, has already written a couple of books about energy issues. He wrote a book about uh, coal and electricity called Big Coal. And his... uh, forthcoming book, which I believe will be out in April. It's called How to Cool the Planet. And it describes various schemes that are now underway to geoengineer countermeasures to global warming and to climate change. And, you know, they're kind of interesting. And uh, he actually uh, tells this in the form of an interesting narrative of the various characters who were involved in these projects, mostly in the United States. There's one project that involves uh, using tiny sulfur particles in the upper atmosphere to kind of create an umbrella of particles uh, over the Earth that would sort of mimic what you get with a major volcanic eruption, which tends to cool the planet down somewhat. And the idea is that we could uh, sort of strew these uh, sulfur particles 
compounds into the upper atmosphere using nothing more complicated than airplanes at, at not really terrible expense. In fact, compared to other things we do, like you know our overseas military adventures, these projects would be really quite cheap. And they had the other advantage of, of being such that if they, if they were causing a problem or they, we found that they weren't working the way we expected, you could just stop doing it and the particles would sift out of the upper atmosphere fairly quickly. They don't stay up there forever. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of other schemes. Uh, almost all of the ones that I read about in Jeff Goodell's book do have the virtue of being fairly inexpensive and being quickly re- reversible. So we'll see how far we that you know that goes along. Um, I personally have reservations about unintended consequences. I'm I'm sure I'm not the only person having that thought, you know, because uh, the you know the human story is a story of uh, you know undertaking projects like this and then having you know this blowback that turns around and bites you in the ass. And you know I think Jeff Goodell in writing the book was keenly aware of that, uh, you know, feature of human life. These particles are going to create telepathic dolphins. Well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. They'll become, we'll we'll become their bitches. (laughs) But, um, you know, I really like the attitude that Jeff uh, uh, had in this book and the narration of it. He's really an extremely thoughtful uh, person and an an extremely thoughtful writer. And, uh, you know, he's got three children that he's concerned about. Uh, and um, so it's, I think it's going to be uh, an important book for this season, and it will be one of the things that will contribute to a better understanding of our predicament and, and some of the choices open to us. You know, I think that Jeff is also pretty much uh, a proponent of the cap-and-trade process for, uh, you know, if you are a business and you find a way to reduce your carbon emissions, you can, you can sell your carbon credits to other people and you can swap them around in a way that will be beneficial, not necessarily just for Goldman Sachs, you know. Uh, but, of course, that's one of the unintended consequences. We don't want to turn it into a racket. But, uh, you know, at this point, in this particular book, it's presented as something that does have um, some uh, prospects for uh, working okay. And, you know, I find that a lot of the right-wing propaganda against it, where, you know, they're constantly referring to it as cap and tax, as just another scheme to, you know, to gouge the taxpayer. You know, I think that that's unfortunate because we really have to seriously consider taking action. You know, we we really can't sit on our hands forever and just uh, sit back and pray that uh, everything will turn out all right. Of course, you know, there's a whole other kind of line of uh, public uh, misunderstanding, uh, which is the idea that just because we had a lot of snow in the month of February 2010, that means that climate change is canceled, you know, because there were, there were three st- snowstorms in Philadelphia, Washington, and New York City that, uh, you know, glo- there's no chance they can have global warming. And, uh, you know... It, the public misunderstands this. Uh, you know, climate change and global warming is not just about whether you have a storm in the winter. It's about one of, one of the things it's about is having more extreme weather events, you know, of exactly the kind that, uh, that maybe we're having. It doesn't mean the winter is canceled and certainly not, you know, overnight. 
Uh, and this whole effort to discredit the idea of climate change, by the way, is being very heavily funded by corporations that have an interest in it. I saw a statistic last night on uh, uh, one of the blogs. It might have been the energybulletin.com. I, I, I forget, frankly. But um, uh, the figure was something like corporations like ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies, you know, the, the coal companies, which have huge lobbying efforts and deep resources. They're spending on the order of $36 million a year on uh, public relations to promote the idea that uh, climate change is either not happening or is unimportant. And that compares with the roughly $3 million that the environmental groups and lobbies uh, and organizations are spending to uh, educate the public to the, to the realities of the situation. You know, meanwhile, the polar ice caps are visibly melting. You know, the Greenland ice, uh, ice sheets are visibly retreating. You know, every year... You know, we're getting closer to opening up the Northwest Passage through the through above northern Canada in the Arctic. You know, everybody from the Russians to the Canadians uh, are making plans to uh, start drilling for oil in uh, the Arctic Ocean now that it's open. So the idea that nothing's happening out there is, you know, probably false. Now, you know, there's a whole other set of questions about. How much of it is due to, to man-made behavior and how much of it is due to uh, natural variations in climate that, have, that, that we know exist in the historic record? You know, we know quite a bit. Um, Elizabeth Colbert's uh, series about the Greenland ice sheets in the New Yorker magazine several years back, which were turned into a book, I'm sure, but I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the title. The, uh, the, the ice cores that were drilled out of the Greenland ice sheet tell a very uh, interesting story, you know. Um, and we know that uh, there have been, in some cases, pretty rapid shifts in climate. And, of course, these things happened scores and hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we know that they weren't caused by, you know, Hummers and uh, Toyota Land Cruisers. Yeah, I just saw a great documentary about the evolution of humankind. And one of the theories is that we started walking on two legs and we developed uh, brains that were capable of complex thoughts because of these rapid climate shifts. Yeah, that words, really... We had to adapt and stay Yeah, they, for, they forced such rapid a adaptation and resourcefulness that, you know, the resourceful succeeded and thrived or at least were able to carry their chromosomes forward. Yeah. That made me think that... Uh, Perhaps humanity is prepared to adapt to a new set of circumstances with global climate change in the future. Well, look, you know, the universe is kind of a dangerous place. I mean, you never know what it's throwing at you, whether it's an asteroid or a cancer cell. You know, it's, if it's not one thing, it's, it's, if it's not one damn thing, it's another. Uh, and I'm sure we can expect a lot of, you know, really major travail as the human story goes forward. For me personally, I, I don't, I'm not in favor of just sacrificing civilization. I'm not against civilization in the, in the sense that maybe some of the readers and followers of Daniel Quinn are you know, the author of that book, Ishmael, and the various spin offs from it, um, which 
tended to promote uh, a philosophy which said that civilization has been the bane of mankind and we must get rid of it and, and go to something else, presumably whatever civilization was not, you know, which for us was kind of, I suppose, is a primitive you know, Paleolithic state of savagery, I suppose. I mean, unless we become a different kind of human organism, you know, and then who, that be that you know can do supernatural things. But uh, for for the moment, we appear to not be headed exactly in that direction. We don't know where evolution is taking us, or you know how long the road ahead is. But I think we'd like to preserve civilization, you know. I, I mean, I, I, I would like to think that Mozart will go on. You know, I'd like to think that we're going to continue to have Root Canal and, you know, and uh, other uh, uh, benefits of... Um, Mo- Mozart and Root Canal. Yeah. <laughs> Two of the greatest benefits of mankind. You know? Your mind is... a amazing it's thing, a strange <laughs> little world in there but so jim i want to get to... maybe I, th- I should have thrown in angel food cake <laughs> you, you could make po- you could design posters that people hang on their walls with this stuff you know uh, i don't know whatever maybe. maybe we should sell them we should we I, could make an yeah. extra buck here we could both st- use the money right yeah you can see where my mind is at right now so yeah. i want to address the listeners uh Specific question a little more, though. There is this idea out there, I've encountered it, where people just say, I hope they build bigger Hummers. I hope, I hope people start driving around bulldozers to just burn up all the gas so we can get on to the next phase of civilization, which is not um, the fossil fuel phase. What are your thoughts on that? Are you eager for peak oil to just get it on with? Or I think peak oil is getting it on. And, that you know, we're not going to have to wait that long to get into trouble with it. You know, my own personal uh, evaluation of the, the, the thing is that, um, you know, once you get to a certain point with peak oil, uh, not very far over the peak and down the arc of depletion, you know, I think very quickly after that point, we get into such significant disruptions of all these complex systems that, that are based on that and, and that we depend on, that uh, a lot of this stuff is going to stop fairly quickly. I think that the, I think the mass motoring is not going to continue uh, for more than a, another decade or so in the way that we know it today. I really think, you know, I mean, people might think it's, it's weird or, or unbelievable, but I'm pretty confident that it's, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of that fairly rapidly. You know, one one of the things that does concern me is that there there is quite a bit of coal out there, though not as much as people fantasize about, and we are liable to burn up as much of it as we can. Mm. You know, I, I I don't see what will what would stop us from doing that if we can. Although it does require a certain amount of organizational support to make it work. You know, it in other words, to get the coal in those endless streams of uh, freight cars that are taking it out of Wyoming and sending it to the power plants elsewhere, that has to be organized in a certain way that, you know, makes it happen. And also the electric grid and all the infrastructure of the electric grid, including the power plants, the coal-burning plants, they have to be operating in a, in a uh, rational way that will keep them going too. And, you know, when, you, when we start to undergo some serious systems failures, I'm not entirely con- convinced that all these systems are going to keep on running the way they have. 
so that I'm not convinced it will take any kind of campaign to run all the Hummers, you know, to run it all down consciously and deliberately the way this guy is suggesting. But he's, he's, he's saying we're screwed if we did do that, though, because we would, we would just hasten the climate change problems. I don't know that it's a matter of the flow rate, really, whether we put it all up there in three and a half years or if we, you know, put it up more gradually in, in uh, 42 years. You know, it's still going to be what it is going up there. And, and so I'm not convinced that it's the, the flow rate of getting the carbon dioxide actually into the air quickly that's going to make all that difference. One major reason uh, is that there's... There's quite a lag in the way carbon dioxide behaves in the atmosphere and, and how much it lingers up there and, you know, the, the time that it takes for the heat to accumulate. And, you know, it's not just going to be kind of an overnight thing. So, Jim, let's talk about some of the, the moral obligations here with preventing global climate change. I, and I want to know your thoughts on it. Do you feel morally responsible for doing your part to curb global warming. I have pretty mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, I'm kind of convinced that there is not going to be some kind of a concord or protocol among the different nations to act. Uh, for one thing, I believe that the, the, the various advanced nations are going to be in such a state of distress during the decade or two ahead that they'll be totally preoccupied with their own problems and, and especially the problems of finances and economy. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see international treaties that really work. I myself, uh, I, I don't know, you know, I have thought many times about, uh, you know, w if and when I finally do have a place of my own and I have some control over issues such as how I heat my house, you know, what would I do? What would I choose? You know, I, I would certainly try to make it as uh, I would certainly try to insulate it the best that I could. But I, it's also occurred to me that uh, that I, I better get a hold of a woodlot you know, so that I can have a wood-burning stove that would allow me to heat my house with wood. But on the other hand, I think, well, Christ, you know, you're just, uh, you're burning wood and you're, you're just flinging all this CO2 into the air. You know, what can you do? I mean, one thing I suppose you could do would be, be to build a passive solar house, you know, burn it into the earth or something. And it's, you know, it's not a bad idea, I suppose. I don't know if I'm ever going to be, you know, financially able to do that, uh, to build a house from the ground up now. You know, it seems more likely that I'm going to re-inhabit a, a structure that's already been built. You know, you raise an interesting issue with uh, ownership versus renting. Uh, I've noticed that hotels are addressing this more and more by trying to get their clients, the people staying at the hotel, to not be so wasteful with the air conditioner, with the towels. Have you seen these signs? In oh, hotels? sure. Because people tend to just, even if they're really frugal at home with the heat, when they're at a hotel, they just crank it to 90. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, you, you just run the shower for like, you know, an hour and a half, you know. Right, and even something like just going through a fresh towel every day, they have little signs now telling you like, listen, folks, you can 
you can use the same towel for your two-day stay. Here. Well, I got to suppose that, uh, you know, the, the advantage in there is for the hotel to simply pay for less laundry. And, and oh, so yeah. It's, yeah, and it costs money to... Yeah. And then, in a way, they're just sort of laying a guilt trip on you, as we used to say. Right, but they're, you're absolutely right. But I, I did, I think, hear a, a news story about this recently, about just how eco-people, e- the eco-obsessed are still... Very reckless when they're staying at hotels. Yeah, yeah sure. But you know what? The, uh, one of the uh, things that, we're, that will come out of left field on this is that it won't so much be a matter of the tourists using fewer towels. There will be fewer tourists. <laughs> you know, We're not going to have that kind of affluence that will allow people to just you know, fly off to Cancun when they feel like it or just, you know, just jet off for a weekend in uh, London or... or San Francisco. So yeah. there will be fewer people staying in those hotels. It, you know, it, it raises the, uh, you know, lots of other interesting questions like what happens to all those businesses? What happens to all the hotels? What happens to the buildings when they can no longer justify the, you know, running them? So yeah. there are all sorts of weird questions in there. More on morals. I, I don't know if you're going to remember this, Jim, but probably in 2002, you wrote a blog after seeing some environmental movie that showed polar bears like falling into the ocean because they had no more ice to walk around. I don't know if you, I'm just trying to jog your memory, but you were very outraged in your blog post about, you know, what kind of species of animal would allow this to occur on planet earth, you know, where, where we created a situation where polar bears are are, are dying because they have no more habitat. Do you, does this jog a memory to you, Jim? Well, uh, you know, you I like pissed. animals. I feel I feel bad when animals suffer. I, you know, and and I don't know. I mean, it's such a common it's such a common emotion and and thought. Uh, I'm, what else can you say? I mean, especially when it, it, it uh, implies the the extermination of a species. I mean, it's horror. It's a horror. Of course, you know, uh, we're losing species every day by the scores or hundreds, as far as I know. And and I don't know how many of them are, you know, bugs and things that we don't pay much attention to. But, you know, when it involves a big mammal, that really gets our attention. And it's very, very sad. And it's, you know, it's one of the few things that really seems to be able to move people. And it says something about uh, the human condition that uh, we, we may be kind of terrible, uh, we may behave very, very badly, but we do have this mysterious and, and kind of winning quality for empathizing with other animals that, that are not human. And I think that it, it bothers us a lot, and it bothers me a lot, and, and makes me angry, and, uh, and I, I'm, I feel sorry about it. I don't know what else to say about it. It's terrible. Yeah, I understand. I mean, people go watch this polar bear drowning on the on the oh, screen God. and they feel terrible, but then they get in their car and then they drive back to their house in the uh-huh. burbs and they they go on with their lives actually mm-hmm. creating the circumstance that's ruining everything for that. Well, look, you know, I, I've said this many, many times, but uh, I do think that we will probably keep on doing what we're doing until we can't do it anymore, at least as far as the kind of uh, American behavior that you're talking about, which mostly involves, you know, the happy motoring scene. And uh, will will people keep on driving? Yeah, you know, I, I'm now living three and a half miles outside of town. Now, I happen to work at home and I don't have to drive all the time. But, you know, for the moment, in, the, in my rented house, I'm going to be driving into town maybe once a day. 
And, um, uh, uh, you know, if we had, if, if, if my town was dense, denser and had better quality housing uh, and more of it, and uh, was organized differently than it is now. It was more like a European city, you know, or, or even a European town of its size and scale. It would be more likely that I would be living in it. But, you know, I'm subject to uh, the current patterns of American life, too. I mean, the one difference is that I'm just renting the pattern for the moment. I'm, uh, you know, I don't own it. And I would militate to change it, not just for everybody else, but for myself. I'd like to live in a better American Main Street town. You know, when we're presented with these huge problems, especially in the documentary films that are very emotional and compelling, the problem seems so overwhelming that I think a lot of people are sort of paralyzed and they end up doing nothing, right? I mean, you can swing too far by just, you know, Al Gore can freak you out to the point where you just turn your brain off and don't want to do anything about it. Have you? I think it's reasonable to think that a lot of people will feel like they can't do anything, like they don't really have any power in this situation, and they won't. But uh, many of those, those people are not evil, and they don't have terrible intentions. And when the time comes, you know, and we have to make the kind of adjustments that uh, reality will mandate... Uh, a lot of those people will do it, and they'll make changes, and and uh, especially the you know the younger people who are kind of moving in that direction anyway. You know, a lot of the, and in a way, it's a sort of a fortuitous thing that you've got this generation of young people who were raised in suburbia and understand now that they're becoming mature what its limitations are and what its uh, uh, drawbacks are. And, and what the benefits are for living in a different kind of environment. And uh, I think that they're going to be making those kinds of choices. So, Jim, I can't end this conversation without talking about this one thing. Um, you know, I'm a publicist. That's kind of my background, so that's where I'm at. But, you know, Al Gore in his movie Inconvenient Truth uh, was cruising around everywhere in this giant black SUV in a motorcade of giant black SUVs. Do you remember this? I mean, he kind of has to because he's... Well, it's president. you know what they what they say in the PR business is that it's bad optics, oh, meaning God. you know it looks bad. Why didn't anyone consult him on that, I, or at least address why it? Why didn't in the he movie? think of it? I you know why, uh, who knows? I don't know. But then it happened again with this recent uh, climate change summit. Everyone was dr- being driven around in these huge limos. Yeah, and the really wealthy guys were flying their pri- private jets over. You know, so I don't know. It's uh, who knows. Things are more complex than they seem on the surface, but uh-huh. it's those superficial visual images that uh, they have a huge effect on the, the general populace. And in order to convince the general populace to get serious about global climate change, you got you to gotta not be <laughs> lecturing to them after ri- arriving in a motorcade yeah. of SUVs, right? Well, Al Gore has taken a lot of hits lately, and you know, maybe he deserves it for that. Um, I don't think he's an evil person. Um, I, I think he did perform something of a service for oh, yeah. for, for us by uh, doing a good job of alerting the public that there was a problem. He's taken a lot of hits in the last year or so. I, I you know, uh, I, he'll suck it up okay, and I think that he'll come out uh, on the other side of this okay, and and I think that we'll we'll overcome this uh, propaganda campaign by the extreme right wing. 
uh, trying to persuade people to become climate change deniers. What's happening now, I believe, is that we're seeing these these two rather major problems, the peak oil problem and the climate change problem, periodically shifting in the public's awareness. And you'll get a, a half a year period where the public is keenly conscious of the peak oil situation because the price goes up of gasoline, you know, and, and uh, then that retreats as the price of gasoline goes down, that retreats in their consciousness. And then they have a very hot summer and they're roasting to death and they begin to get the feeling that maybe something weird's going on with the weather and they become more conscious of that. And then uh, it's winter again and they get a big blizzard and then they're manipulated into believing global, global uh, warming or climate change has been canceled because you just got a big snowstorm in Philadelphia. So these two big problems are kind of interchangeably uh, vying, alternately vying for the public's attention. Either way, you know, I maintain that the mandates of reality are going to break through this wall of confusion because the one thing that all of this action seems to be generating is a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of confusion in the collective imagination, in our ability to arrive at a uh, coherent idea of what's happening to us. But I think that that sooner or later, it will be pretty self-evident. And some of these arguments are going to fade. And then we'll be really propelled into this new realm, the one that Jeff Goodell is writing about in How to Cool the Planet, where we have to start thinking about maybe what we're going to actually do, what kind of actions might we take to uh, possibly mitigate the, the catastrophes of uh, pouring too much CO2 into the atmosphere. Well, Jim, you gave me a lot to think about, so thanks for chatting with me. It's always nice to talk to you about these things, but I, I really hope that we can generate a, um, a broader, more coherent national debate over these issues so that we can actually start going down the path of what we're going to do about the problems that we face. Yeah. You've been listening to the Kunstler cast featuring James Howard Kunstler. To leave a listener comment, call toll-free at 866-924-9499. Send email to letters at kunstlercast.com. You can listen to all of our past programs, join our email list, find out how to book Jim to speak in your area, and talk about the show with other listeners at KunstlerCast.com. I'm your host, Duncan Crary. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.